0: Welcome. I'm so glad to have you, Danielle. It took us a little bit of back and forth before we were finally able to connect, but here you are.
1: Thanks so much for having me and for your patience with my very neurodivergent schedule. Yes, I am. <laughs> <laughs> I have high energy weeks and lower ones, so I try to make sure I factor in energy into my schedule. So,
0: But I'm glad to be here. I bet. You do. When you say my neurodivergent world, you really kind of do have a lot of issues going on. Tell me about that.
1: Sure. We have a pile of stuff. So I'm a neurodiversity coach. I'm myself autistic late-identified autistic, and ADHD. And I also have sensory processing. Just to give you the list straight up, <laughs> I have sensory processing challenges. I have auditory processing disorder. I'm mildly face blind. There's probably other stuff that I'm not remembering right now. And then I have two kiddos who are also autistic adhd and we have a couple of other medically called comorbidities, other things going on, like dyspraxia. And we really love our household, but it looks a lot different, I think, than other families or other households in how we prioritize our time and our energy and organize our lives.
0: I know how challenging it was to raise a child on the spectrum. I have ADHD, but I'm not autistic. And so but mm-hmm. that was hard shit how do you handle that dealing with your own autism symptoms? I was late
1: diagnosed autistic. So my son was diagnosed when he was about two. And then I was diagnosed after him. And then my daughter and my son are about 22 months apart. So the first like couple years of me being a new parent, them being babies were really tough, because no one knew what was going on. We didn't have the education yet. It was also like, i don't know medium days of the internet not quite early days of the internet but we are still on like mailing discussion boards and stuff there wasn't a lot of community built about neurodivergence the way there is now so it was really hard to get information about autistic women even existing much less like as a mother so i think the first couple of years we were just constantly in like panic mode from or emergency mode like something would go wrong It would use up all our resources. We'd just be getting back on our feet. Something else would happen. We didn't really know how to handle the meltdowns and the shutdowns and the overwhelm. I didn't even know that's what I was experiencing. I didn't have words for what I was experiencing. I didn't know any other autistic women at the time or autistic people who were like me at the time. So it was a huge challenge. And then the more research I did and also the better kind of the social networking got Uh, The more resources I had available to me through the internet and like, you know, Instagram and Facebook and even just personal websites and blogs from other autistic people, the more I kind of understood what was happening for me. And then I was able to build in scaffolding for myself, like things that worked for me. And then I was able to teach those to my kids. So now, you know, in 2023, kids are 8 and 10. We're in pretty good shape. Like we have challenges... I think our lives look a lot different than a neurotypical family's lives. And so if you were to compare us side by side, people might judge us about how we live. But actually in terms of our own mental health and our own internal sense of our well-being, I think we're doing real well. I think people are pretty happy. I think we've made things work in a way that is supportive for us, even if it looks very different. But the first couple of years were so, so hard. Yeah.
0: Yeah. And there's a lot of judgment, I think, that goes along with that as well. Absolutely.
1: I think there's so much judgment just as a parent like just that <laughs> just on yes. its own yes. and then the minute you have to adjust what you're doing for a kiddo people are always like well you know you should just be more strict you should just just
0: make them do it just make them do it
1: you know <laughs> or or I got uh, you know you get judgments all the time for um I don't know like my kids wearing different socks I got yelled at by a lady in a parking lot when one of my kids was oh two too wearing different and it's like what is
0: what difference does that make yeah. do you have
1: nothing better to do so like We're receiving judgments all the time for like all sorts of random weird things that don't matter. And then to kind of be able to just say, well, I'm not going to let anyone else shame me. I'm going to do what I think is best for my family um, based on my knowledge of my kids, which is better than other people's knowledge of my kids and what their needs are.
0: Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. I think that's phenomenal because I do know like my own experience. I was a young mother and Mm -hmm. autism in 1990 was You know, you had to be profoundly intellectually disabled, really, to be considered autistic. And nobody knew what was going on. And basically, it was like, oh, you're young, you are poor, and you are uneducated, and kid is this way because you obviously suck as a mother right it's these conclusions people jump to and so it must be your fault yeah yeah it's wonderful that there's so many resources now but i think it's still really hard Mm -hmm. in this society
1: there's still a lot of stigma around the term autistic i was talking to somebody the other day i can't remember who now about how there's still lots of stigma around adhd for example but there's also growing to be more acceptance of adhd as like just some ways that brains are and that, mm-hmm. you know, folks might need different supports, but it's still like, you know, you're still a human, <laughs> you're still worth it. And I think
0: exactly that
1: autism is like kind of behind that. There, there's still a lot of ableism around yes. this idea that like autistic people are somehow subhuman or, or not worth as much. And that, the amount of judgment that comes from that can be really, really hard to navigate.
0: Yeah, that's really interesting. It's an interesting thing to think about. Like, I grew up in the 80s yeah. 70s and the 80s, and, you know, we had, like, regular education and special education, and the special education kids, they really, they were very other, mm-hmm. right? And I think you're right. I think autism, like, when people hear the word autism, they think other, Yeah. and I think that's a big problem.
1: Yeah, yeah. And like you were saying, I was growing up, we're maybe a decade apart from what you're saying. I was growing up in the late eighties, nineties and autistic people like me, weren't like autistic yet. Like if you didn't have the intellectual disability, you didn't right. count. And so I, that's, you know, lots of people in my age bracket were not caught. And yes, then a lot of us are getting into our thirties, forties, fifties and receiving the diagnosis. And we've been alienated our whole lives and not given supports because like people didn't know we existed. So we've like internalized this idea sometimes that autistic people are like other, and then we are an autistic person and we're like, Oh no. And there's a lot of internal work that you have to do. to like,
0: (laughs) Wow. That's fascinating.
1: You know, become okay with that, you know, and then to have your own kids and have to be like, Oh no, you're not another. You're like my kid right here.
0: You're like the same as me. And yes, it's really interesting. Yeah. Yeah. So what do you think about being a person with autism? And do you think that that's, helped you or hindered you in your parenting journey of having children?
1: I think being autistic with autistic kids has been helpful. I don't know what, (laughs) I've never been neurotypical, even though I thought I was for a while. So I don't exactly have a good internal sense of what neurotypical experience is like.
0: Mm, That's a good point.
1: But I know that I get my kids really well and I have made a successful career as a coach, like a parent coach for other families who have autistic kids. And a lot of that is just having the lived experience of knowing, well, if I was reacting in this way, you describe your child reacting, what might be the things that are causing that behavior, right? And being able to have that internalized understanding of like, well, did you look at sensory stuff? Did you look at, you know, environmental changes? Did you look at, you know, autonomy, whatever it is. And I think for my kids, when we problem solve something going on that, you know, we would like to come together as a family and solve. A lot of my autistic experience comes into play in trying to figure out, okay, well, how do we make a plan or a system that works for everybody that accommodates all these various needs, right? Um, Because my kids are different people. They do have different needs. I also have different needs and my energy levels are different. My ADHD presents differently than my son's ADHD does. So like, we really need to be able to factor all these (laughs) little things in to even getting out to go swimming or getting out to go to a park or something can be a challenge some days. But it's also like, if I was neurotypical, I don't even know if I would be like aware or able to be aware of half the stuff that goes into our organization of our day now, you know, so.
0: Yeah. What are some of the things that you've implemented because of your better understanding of what's happening for your kids?
1: I think the sort of the number one thing is just an awareness of the nervous system and how to stay regulated. So I think all humans, regardless of your brain, sometimes we get spiked into anger or fear or we're upset and we can either get excited or nervous or get angry. And for autistic people who are dealing with a baseline of lots of other stuff, um, sometimes that spike, that emotional spike can lead into meltdown or shutdown, especially for kids who are still learning to like, be people. <laughs> um, and so a lot of the work we do is just practicing some regulation strategies, like they can be things like just distracting yourself when you're upset or taking deep breaths or going outside and running back and forth or sorry. There's lots of different strategies, but just talking to the kids about, well, what do we do when we're upset, right? What are some things we can put in place for you that enable you to go on with your day and regulate a little bit before we come back and try to solve the problem? Um, So that's been a big thing we also like practically installed a swing in our basement love
0: that that's
1: awesome and put in a climbing wall and are working with like the physical regulation like if you need to move or you need to stim how can we help you do that in a way that's like going to be supportive for you we do a lot of like practical what collaborative does that look like like teaching teaching conversation skills in a neurodiversity affirming way so like when they were really little <laughs> One of my kiddos, when they get upset, they like run away from the thing that's upsetting them. And one of my Mm -hmm. kiddos would chase them and make them more upset. And it just became like this super dysregulating thing where then like everybody would be upset and we'd all need a break. And it was like a huge pain. And they were little, they were like, I don't know, two and three, two and four. And what we started doing is every time anyone wanted to run, instead we sat down where we were and just teaching them to sit down and breathe and then- we would practice talking to each other. We would say, you know, I I would say as a parent, like, I noticed so-and-so got upset and tried to run away and then remember to sit down. Good job, you know, when they're little. Good job, so-and-so. And then we'd kind of take turns saying, can you tell me why you ran away? You know, and they'd do their best in whatever words they had to do that. And then the other person, you know, the talking stick method, the other person would take their turn. Well, I felt when I saw so-and-so run, I got excited and I wanted to run. So-and-so says, you know. I didn't like when you ran at me. It made me more worried. And just like learning that kind of nonviolent communication strategy of how do we talk about what we are feeling? How do we recognize each other's feelings? And then how, if this happens again, okay, so sometimes when you run, it makes so-and-so want to run and they're still little and they're having trouble remembering that they shouldn't run. So what can we do? And let them problem solve it because kids can like problem solve so creatively and they'd come up with signals and signs and tactics themselves to like, you know, stop the problem. Um, so now at eight and 10, I have kids where I can like be in a room with a client and if they have a problem, like sometimes they'll come and get me and that's fine. But a lot of times I just hear them discussing the problem themselves and they'll solve it. Um, and if they can't solve it, they'll wait 20 minutes till I come and check on them and, you know, um, or if their dad's on a meeting or whatever. So just like noticing where the problems are and then strategizing to address them as opposed to just letting them linger and get worse and worse and worse is a big strategy of ours.
0: You mentioned your husband. How does he fit into this whole family structure, and sure. how does he manage being surrounded by autism? Uh, is he neurotypical or he's autistic? He's well? an
1: ADHD. Yeah, he's also late okay. identified ADHD. Was identified a couple years after I was identified autistic. I think. In retrospect, I don't know how we missed that. Um, <laughs> now that I work with ADHD people every day, I'm like, yeah, he, you know, kind of fits all the major traits. Yeah, I think you know part of our working together as a couple is especially being both late diagnosis having to figure out the same problems like okay well when you do this thing this way it spikes me and then i have this reaction that i don't like so how can we navigate this and support each other even though our needs can be different and so there did have to be some kind of renegotiation of needs and like i want to support you what can i do different or how can we manage this in a way where we're both getting our needs met but i think that strategy in our relationship really supports the way we run our our family structure because it's a collaborative process that everybody in the family has the autonomy to say what they need and for the rest of us to try as best we can within reason to meet, you know, to meet the needs and to build on the trust in the relationship. And that means that sometimes we'll go out of our way to meet each other's needs, but then other folks will go out of their ways on a bad day for us. So it does feel like a supportive system and one that's worked really well for us.
0: That's amazing. Do you have outside help or do you have any other like outside structure that helps you as a family with this sort of dynamic?
1: One of our kiddos is in occupational therapy right now, which has been super supportive. We have a couple other therapists on our team. And then we are currently right now homeschooling, but we have a couple of co-ops. Right now we're in the summer, so the co-ops are off. But during the school year, my son at 10 is in co-op twice a week. And then my daughter at eight is in co-op once a week. And then the rest is at home. They do have some high stress and high anxiety around traditional schooling. We tried it and it, it was, the teachers were great. Uh, like the school itself is a good school, but it was just incredibly overwhelming for my specific kids and they did not get anything from it. Um, and yeah. it, in, in some cases regressed skills a couple of years just because there was so much sensory overwhelm and and communication overwhelm and all sorts of things. So we did pull them from that. Yeah.
0: I think the prospect of homeschooling is super difficult for a lot of people to even conceptualize mm-hmm. as parents. But I will say, looking back, if you can anyhow manage to homeschool your autistic child, for the most part, that's going to be so much better. Because honestly, like as awful as it is, school is really the place where a lot of negative things happen to yeah. our autistic kids. hmm
1: Yeah, I think the stigma really builds there. There's a lot of bullying. Even good teachers don't understand, if they're not trained, like they don't understand why autistic kids are behaving in certain ways or, you know, what they're trying to demonstrate.
0: Right. And, you know, not for nothing, they have 30 kids in their class. Oh, yeah. right. Like these are hard situations for them. So That's what I mean. It's
1: not the teacher's fault. (laughs) No.
0: The way traditional school is set up is just not Mm -hmm. ideal for the autistic child.
1: I personally feel like it's not ideal for any child. <laughs> so <laughs> I guess yeah. it, it is exacerbated by certain kinds of brains, you know, needing different things, but I guess I, I. Oh, in um, today's
0: society, it's true, right? We're not sending our children off to the factories or the coal mines yeah. for the most part. So yeah. the structures that are in place are not really.
1: They're a little aged out. Yeah.
0: Yeah. Just a little. <laughs> <laughs> Just a little tiny bit.
1: Yeah. I have a yeah. lot of clients who've transitioned their kiddos um, from like kind of traditional schooling into some kind of homeschool escort situation, or even just smaller, smaller schools, like, you know, Charles Mason or Montessori, or, you know, forest schools, whatever those alternative mm-hmm. kinds of options are in your area. And many of them pre- report a lot more success just because the kids are less overwhelmed. And when they're less overwhelmed, yeah. they can, anybody can do perform better when they're less overwhelmed, like that's just yeah. human nature. So
0: yeah.
1: Um, yeah, I agree with you. If folks can do it, they should.
0: So as an autistic mom, how do you keep yourself from getting overwhelmed?
1: I have a lot of downtime built into my schedule that doesn't really end up being downtime, but is like, for example, today, I have a bunch of meetings with clients. I'm I'm talking to you. Yesterday, I did not have any meetings with anybody. (laughs) And I, you know, I worked on offline projects and I read and I hung out with my kids and we did some work together. But I really try to space myself with a very clear awareness of my energy and all the places that energy needs to go. So I need to spend some time with my family. I need to spend some time at housework. I need to spend some time at schoolwork. I need to spend some time at my job. So my schedule is kind of very possibly over-designed to make sure that there are breaks and gaps and times where I can just be a lump and stare at the wall for a while if I need to, or take a walk or um, get on text thread with my friend or whatever I need to do to make sure I'm restoring and regulated. Um, I also just can't work. Uh, a traditional 40-hour work week. I can do 40 hours, but it needs to be split up, probably in a way that would look very awkward to a neurotypical person, but works very well for me, where I'm taking chunks of time on and chunks of time off. And, oh, I work from home. So I can control, as an autistic person, (laughs) I can control my routine. I can control my sensory environment. I can have access to the foods that are a good fit for me. And, you know, I can take bathroom breaks when I want, like just the basic stuff that you can't really get in a traditional office environment or, you know, even a a blue collar job environment. You don't have a lot of autonomy a lot of times over your own needs and meeting those needs. And I will go into meltdown if I don't meet my needs. I haven't had a meltdown in months and months at this point, but like it happens occasionally. So I've had to sort of really rethink what my work looks like and really push back against some of the stereotypes about what should look like the same way we've had to push back against stereotypes of what school should look like, right? Because, you know, again, and I think work is one of those things where it probably isn't working for most people, whether they're autistic or not, but it especially doesn't work for folks who have different environmental needs. So
0: You said you haven't had a meltdown for a long time. Mm-hmm. So, you know, I mean, we're human, we all have meltdowns, but when you have autism, it's a sort of a unique animal. So how do yeah. you explain that to your children when that does happen?
1: I think my kids have probably seen autistic meltdowns more often than neurotypical meltdowns. So it is to some degree normalized to them and they also have them. So in some ways we use kind of the neurodiversity model in in my house, which is just the idea that like all brains are equal and valid and valuable and all brains are good at certain things and not good at certain things. And because we're all autistic end up talking about how sometimes your brain just gets overwhelmed. Like it's trying to help you and there's just too much stuff and it can't help you. And it just sort of like, (laughs) takes a break, right? So I think there's an acceptance and an awareness that sometimes this just happens and it doesn't mean anyone did anything wrong. It doesn't mean mama snapped, it doesn't mean like the kid did something bad that made a thing happen. It's just like brains get overwhelmed and what we do when brains get overwhelmed is we take a break, right? So I'll remove myself and take 10 minutes, you know, they're old enough too that they can handle. It was harder when they were younger because sometimes you can't leave the room safely, (laughs) but we created systems, right? Where there was a safe place where kiddo could be so that if I need to step away for 10 minutes, they might not be happy, but they would be safe. And then we can come back and repair, right? If needed. Now at this age at eight and 10 and with me, I think everyone occasionally has a bad moment, whether it's a meltdown, a shutdown, or just like, you know, my game didn't load and I'm upset about it. And all of us will take breaks. Like we'll go, to our own rooms or we'll go to they'll go to their swing in the basement or they'll go wherever they feel safe. My son will take a walk around the cul-de-sac. He's old enough to do that on his own and regulate and then come back. And if we need to, you know, fix something, like repair the relationship or say, "Sorry I, you know, started crying. It was not related to you. I just had a moment." But it's sort of normalized. And I think, you know, kind of accepting the emotion and that things happen and people are trying their best and like we can fix it. It's not, you know, you're allowed to have a feeling. And just come back. I yeah.
0: love that. I love that. That's yeah. amazing. Your children are very lucky to have you. <laughs>
1: That's very nice of you. I hope that is the case, but we'll see when they're adults how they feel about my parenting style.
0: <laughs> well, I think we all, you know, we all have childhood wounds to some yeah. degree, no matter how perfect your parent.
1: <laughs> oh yeah, it's just the nature of the world. Yeah.
0: It's the world. Yeah. yeah. So, um, other than the swing and the rock climbing wall in your basement, which I think are brilliant and amazing.
1: Oh, if you can do it, put a swing in. Oh my gosh. It looks so ugly, but it helps so much.
0: Are you able to use it yourself? I yeah. would have so much fun on that. Yeah, that's awesome. And my
1: husband researched all of it. So thanks has to go to him because I can do like basic handy work, but this was kind of beyond me, but he put a hard point in the ceiling and then we have like when you go to an OT's office and they clip the swings in and out of the hard point, that's what we have. So we have a range of swings and the kids, they're not quite tall enough to reach. So we switch out the swings upon request, but they can access a couple of different kinds and they can do all sorts of things with them and do it if you can't. It's so great.
0: <laughs> yeah, that's awesome. Yeah. Tell me the other most unique thing in your family that other people, if they didn't have neurodiversities going on, wouldn't even consider.
1: Oh, I think we have a couple of things. There's not a lot that I think if you walked into our household, you would be like, ah, this is a different household. (laughs) But the way we relate to each other is somewhat different in that we use a very collaborative strategy. Like my partner and I ask the kids if we want to go out or go do something together together. We ask that we get their permission, not for like, if I want to go out and have lunch, but if as a family wants to go out. So we want to go to the movies. We're interested in seeing this movie with you. Do you want to go? If so, when? Because some days they can handle that kind of thing. And some days they can't. And I think it's important yeah. that they learn to be able to say no and self-advocate. Because when they're 18, if they move out, you know, I don't want them to just be saying yes to everyone. I want, I want them to be able to say no. So we practice yeah. them saying no, which I think a lot of parents are like, you're letting your kids run your life, and I'm like, well, they're autonomous beings. They're like humans; like they need some supports. There, right. they're younger. They don't have the experience.
0: It is true, and you know that yeah. causes a lot of damage for people with autism as they get older, especially females. That's they what I worry about. Advantage of and yeah. whatnot. So yeah, but even you know, I, I, from experience, I can tell you, like my son is thirty, and he's just starting to figure out. Like yeah, people suck a lot of times. You got to be careful.
1: Yeah, and a lot of autistic people, and like you said, especially women, but everybody if we're taught to people, please, we don't even know what we want sometimes. I can say this as someone who's late diagnosed, I had suppressed so much because I was just trying to fit in. And then when I realized I was autistic, I sort of started to dig out like how much I was pushing down and trying to look neurotypical. And that meant that I was not really aware of like what I needed. I wasn't really aware of like what my body was trying to tell me and how to advocate for myself was like this whole new layer. And so I would love for my kids.
0: Mm, I hadn't really thought about that aspect of masking and how that contributes to that. Yeah.
1: If you don't even know you're masking, (laughs) I can think of, at least for an autistic girl, a lot of my experience growing up, and I don't know that I understood it this way at the time, but having gone back and like reprocessed it and rethought about it, a lot of us start having a lot of trouble around middle school age because just social expectations for girls just shoot up overnight and I would fit in for a little while and then I would do something and I never knew what I would do something that somehow didn't fit in and I would get ostracized from the group and I would either be bullied or I would be just sort of the girl in the corner for a while and then I would maybe find another group and I would be okay for a while and then I would do something (laughs) and be ostracized. And if you ask neurotypical people, what did I do that made you feel uncomfortable, they often won't tell you because of their politeness norms. But for an autistic person, it's like, I actually don't know what I did. I actually need your feedback to model better neurotypical norms. And over time, that kind of experience repeated at the workplace and in school and through you know, college and stuff can really carve away at our own awareness of our needs because we really just want to be accepted and we're constantly pushed out right, of yeah. social circles. And then when I was identified, it was like, oh, it's because I was trying to be someone that I absolutely am not. And of course, I was not going to be able to do that. And So the, the expectation was just unreasonable for everybody in that situation. But yeah, it can cause a lot of like lack of awareness of your identity and your values and yeah. your needs.
0: I imagine there's a lot of dissonance, cognitive dissonance. Right? Yeah,
1: that's the word. That's great. Thank you. Dissonance. That's exactly what it is. Some people feel negative about the word autism, like we were saying, but for me and for a lot of people I've talked to, the word is like, oh, like it's the alignment of the note comes back in, right? It's like, oh, I get that. Like, Uh, these are my people. Now I can find other autistic people and finally fit in the group and not be ostracized. Cause now if I'm in a group of autistic people and I do something, someone will be like, I don't like that you did that. And then we can talk about it (laughs) Um, like the culture is different. And so it really helps. It really helps.
0: Oh, that's amazing. So if parents are listening and they are autistic and they're like socially isolated, they have no Mm -hmm. idea where to go for support or to find other people in their boat, how do they do that? Yeah, there's
1: a lot of different options nowadays. So I think it's really important, just like it's important for autistic kids to meet other autistic kids, it's important for autistic adults to meet other autistic adults. And so if you can, if you have the ability, there's almost always a group of autistic adults somewhere in your area. And sometimes they're on Meetup or on Eventbrite or something like that, and you can find them online. You can also ask your local Autism Society board if they have anyone running. Sometimes they'll have autistic adults running groups through them, although there's a national board. Whether the one near you is going to be particularly helpful really depends on where you are, unfortunately. But it's worth checking. You know, you can send out the email and see. And then if that doesn't work, if you go to Autastic, they have a map of different groups across the world. You can check on Facebook for local groups. You can check on Instagram in the tags. And then also there's lots of neurodivergent coaches like me and consultants and educators and lots of neurodivergent people. Many of us know of groups in your area. So even if you go on LinkedIn and you plug in your area and look for an autism consultant there, or look for a neurodiversity consultant in your area, and just ask them like do you know of any groups for adult autistics or parent you know autistics or whatever and they might have some suggestions for you
0: that's great those are great suggestions thank Good. you so you do autism coaching tell me about that
1: sure so i do coaching for adults who are neurodivergent under any label or self-labeled it's a lot of late identified autistic people that i serve but also adhders and borderline personality and sensory processing and all these kinds of things and I started it because it was the same thing. as the reason I started the podcast. I couldn't find resources for myself. So I was like, well, at least I could make some resources for other people. And it's been really fantastic. Depending on the client, we work with all sorts of things. But some of the common things we work with are what I was talking about a little bit about how after diagnosis, you can start to reflect on your life and realize gaps in your self-awareness, self-confidence, knowing what your values are, those kinds of things. So I do a lot of that work with clients is like identifying values, identifying your needs, how to make your home or your workplace or your, just your lifestyle more friendly to who you are as a person, right? A lot of us, for example, set up houses the way our parents set them up, but then it's like, oh, actually it doesn't serve me to have my clothes folded all the time. Like I'm never going to fold them anyway. It's just always going to be unfolded. So maybe we can set up a different system, right? Or it doesn't actually serve me to make three meals a day. I'm going to make big batches and just eat the same thing all week, whatever it is for, you know, different kinds of folks. So a lot of it is just sort of breaking down what are the expectations that you learned and are they actually working for you as somebody with different needs? And then we also work with parenting coaching, which is often parents who have kids... have a different neurotype than them. So an or has an autistic kid or an autistic parent has a neurotypical kid or whatever, and just trying to help each person understand each other and the ways that they are the same and the ways that they are different and come to find a parenting method or, or set of goals or set of values that really aligns with who you are as a person. Because every parent is different. Every parent has different goals for their kid. Every parent wants to highlight different values for their children. And so, working to kind of identify those and build communication, we do a lot of. So.
0: Yeah,
1: it's really great, and I love it.
0: <laughs> wow, that is that's phenomenal. Yeah, I love the way you flip it upside down, also. And autistic parents with neurotypical children, There's a right? lot of us. Like I think yeah. that that dynamic is often not looked at mm-hmm. or appreciated for the difficulties that it presents. So yeah. Yeah. So that's amazing. You also have a podcast you mentioned.
1: Yes, I have the Neurodiverging Podcast, which you can get wherever you find your podcasts. And we interview mostly neurodivergent speakers and guests about all sorts of different things. We're trying to provide resources for other neurodivergent families or mixed neurotype families about things like educating people who have different needs how to help kiddos off to college if they have significant educational needs how sometimes we highlight different neurodiversities that are not as well known so talking about auditory processing disorder or talking about Erlen syndrome or talking about you know just different things that you might not have bumped into that might apply to you we cover whatever I'm into that week but we we cover a lot of education <laughs> topics because I'm as a homeschooler particularly interested in how, that we all want our kids to have a good education and how our current system doesn't really allow that access in a way that we'd like. We cover that a lot. We cover a lot of sort of accessibility stuff at work. So how can workplaces be more accessible and how can you as an employee request those things in a way that like your boss is likely to listen to you about? The podcast is on hiatus right this minute as we're recording. And so my brain is completely not in podcast mode. I'm sorry. So I'm blanking, but we have a huge, Oh, just, I know what it, obviously like coaching stuff. I'm sorry. I am an autistic person. Sometimes my brain just doesn't fill in coaching stuff. So like if you're an individual person and you're trying to like organize your stuff or organize your time or organize your energy, what are some maybe tips and tricks to do that? And sometimes it's just me talking and sometimes we interview other like we just had Alexander Gilbert on last season, who's a great ADHD coach. We've had Jackie Corsi, who's actually another she's a neurodiversity coach, but she's an ADHDer on recently. We had Aaron Croft on last year who, yeah. So we try to have folks on with different perspectives, right? Because each client is awesome. listening is going to need something different. So
0: yeah, yeah it's great. That's so true. <laughs> well, that's a phenomenal resource. So if you're listening to this, check out that podcast, NeuroDiverging. Thank you Dawn, I appreciate it. And uh, I'm gonna put all this information in the show notes. You've been a phenomenal guest and I think that you have a lot of valuable information to offer so definitely everyone check that out. Thank you so much for having me on, I really
1: appreciate it. I hope that it's gonna serve your audience.
0: <laughs> Thank you Danielle, it's been a true pleasure. Thank you Dawn, I appreciate it. Thanks for hanging out with me today. I really appreciate you spending your valuable time here. I think it's kind of magical that we're all on this journey together, each one of us with our own unique circumstances, but we're all here together learning and growing and striving to be the best version of ourselves so that we can be better at supporting the people we love. Quick shout out to my extraordinary editor and co-producer, Sam Eisenbaum. I know that there are a lot of parents and caregivers out there who are looking for the kind of community that we are creating here. If you find value in this podcast, it would mean so much to me if you could rate and review it on your podcast platform so that more people like us can find it. And remember, I am a psychiatric nurse practitioner. However, I am not your or your child's psychiatric nurse practitioner, and nothing in this podcast is considered medical advice. I hope you guys have a fantastic week.